You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jim Schof, and I'm a senior associate here at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. I, I run our Japan program that is uh, now almost six months old. Uh, so excited about that and, and excited to have you here with us today. Uh, we have a, a, a very good crowd, and, and uh, I think that's a testament to our, our speakers and, and to the topic at hand. Um, today's event is, is really a, a U.S.-Japan Research Institute uh, event. It's part of their USJI week. Um, and, and when I saw the, the topic for this event advertised, I, uh, I, I was very intrigued because it, it really fits in with a lot of what I hope our Japan program here can, uh, uh, can address. Um, and so I called up Yasunaga-san and, and, and asked uh, uh, if it would be okay to, to, to host the event here, and, and uh, they gratefully accepted. Um, because this topic really fits in with uh, what we want to do in our Japan program. I believe that we could find more effective ways to leverage the alliance to be a positive force behind Asia's rise in development, uh, helping to shape the regional architecture in a constructive and inclusive way. And our institute, our endowment will be launching a project uh, along these lines as well in the, in the coming, coming year. So I thank USJI for, for working with us on, on this project. And, and I wanted to welcome briefly uh, Professor Uchida uh, Katsuichi, uh, who is president of USJI and also vice president of Waseda University. And it's, it's a great honor to have you here with us, Uchida-sensei. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, welcome to joint seminars of the USJI and also the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace on the topics of the U.S.-Japan law in building an East Asian uh, communities. And this is the, one of the events of the USJI week. And USJI is the uh, non-profit uh, research organizations uh, established in March 2009 by eight leading Japanese universities like Doshisha, uh, Kyoto, Keio, Kyushu, Ritsumeikan, Tsukuba, Tokyo, and Waseda universities. And we are, very, we are supported by Japanese uh, corporations and also the foundations in the United States. <coughs> The uh, purpose of the uh, USJI is to dispatch the policy-related research activities of Japanese universities to show the uh, wider audience in the United States. Uh, we have covered many uh, important issues, I mean uh, global issues, both United States and Japan faced. And uh, every year we have uh, we, we have uh, USJ week twice a year, usually in March and in September. And this week uh, we have eight events, and I understand this is the sixth event of this USJI week. Uh, we have covered uh, in this week many different topics, such as the uh, well, food, environment, energy, and uh, well, disaster resilience and the future of the Korean Peninsula. And uh, uh, today we're going to discuss this uh, US-Japan role in building an East Asian communities. And uh, tomorrow, uh, 
would this uh, the title of event seven is the uh, the U.S. pivot to Asia and Japan, China and Korea. The subtitle is How can new leaders in Northeast Asia maintain regional pieces, and particularly uh, well emphasize on maritime security in East Asia and China Japan problems. That's the event seventh. Uh, that's the mo uh, in the morning of tomorrow. And in the afternoon, uh, the, we'll have a seminar on evaluating Japan's, Japanese growth and reverse strategy. Is Abe inheriting DPJ's policy? And so I would like to welcome yours, to, not only to this event, but also <coughs> the event uh, tomorrow morning and afternoon. Anyway, uh, we are very pleased to be able to co-host these programs with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Shizu-sensei. Um, a, a couple more words of, of introduction before I, I, I introduce our speakers today. The, there was an interesting article in the current edition of National Interest that, that caught my attention um, entitled The Mythical Liberal Order uh, by uh, Nazneen Barma, Eli Ratner, and, and Steve Weber. The, the article considers the post-World War II Western-led so-called liberal order and concludes that it's not so much under siege around the world in places like the Middle East and, and North Korea, uh, but that it never really lived up to its aspiration in the first place and that its existence is something of a myth, uh, which I stopped and pondered for a little while, and I decided that I disagree with that uh, the various aspects of their argument. But... But I think it's useful to challenge some of the assumptions that we have about the post-World War II liberal order and also keep that in the back of our mind as, as we, we turn our attention to, to East Asia. And uh, as an East Asian community evolves and, and matures in our lifetime, uh, the roles, of I think, of the alliances and of coalitions of, of countries with shared interests willing to get engaged is going to be extremely vital. And that's, that's a, a big reason why I think the U.S.-Japan alliance has a, has a key role to play in, in the emergence of, of an East Asian community. Now, today I, I expect you'll get more questions and answers on this topic. As I understand it, Professor Oga is, is still in the early stages of his project, and he's come to Washington to gather information uh, and insights. And so, in a way, you're, you're a part of the early phase of, of his project. And we'll so solicit your input um, after uh, after our speakers present. First, let me introduce uh, our main speaker, Dr. Uh, Toru Oga. Oga-sensei is an associate professor of political dynamics analysis at Kyushu University uh, with a focus on international politics and East Asian regionalism. Uh, he's the author of Discourses on Asian and Nation, Asian, Asian and Nation, The Asian Financial Crisis and Rediscovering Asianness, and he's published on open regionalism and... Uh, uh, as well as Asian civil society and regional solidarity movements. And we're lucky to have two wise uh, and experienced discussants with us today. Jim Pritzip, uh, on the end of the table, my, my far left, is senior research fellow uh, at the Institute for National Strategic Studies at the National Defense University. He has a very deep and comprehensive knowledge, uh, not only about the alliance, but also the region as well, serving in a variety of official capacities on Capitol Hill and State Department and Defense Department. And, and also Mike Mochizuki, uh, to his right, 
um, whom I'm sure you all know, uh, Japan-U.S. Relations Chair in memory of Gaston Seeger, and Associate Dean at the George Washington University. Uh, previously, Mike uh, directed the Seeger Center for Asian Studies and uh, was a senior fellow at Brookings, has taught at USC and, and Yale University as well, and a, a very talented scholar who knows both the region and Japan well. So without further delay, let me turn to Professor Oga to get us started on this discussion and conversation. Oga Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Tor Oga, the Associate Professor in the Kyushu Universities. Um, <clears throat> it is my great pleasure to be here. Uh, I'd like to express my gratitude to USJI and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, especially for um, James Scoff, the co-hosting these regular opportunities. Um, here, uh, I have 15 minutes for presentations. For the first five minutes, I introduce the overview of the project, and uh, in the rest of the time, I'm going to proceed my own research presentations. Sorry, okay. <clears throat> um, in okay, uh, in the first place, the the project is a study uh, of security community in East Asia. Um, it is international collaboration, international collaboration studies uh, among Japanese, Korean, Chinese, and American scholars. Um, in Japan, I based on the Japanese Association of Political Sociology. Um, we already have uh, three different conferences uh, in these themes. Um, the Mike Mochizuki here that joined one of these conferences um, in the last month, the January. Um, <clears throat> Uh, it is the first time for me to present the, this theme in the United States, uh, but USJI is a great opportunity for our purpose. Well, the security community is, in definitions, a region in which a large scale of use of violence has become very unlikely or even unthinkable. In the contemporary context, uh, it includes the traditional and non-traditional security issues well, <clears throat> um, and this time of the seminar, um, we have a Japanese and American scholars, so we examine the role of U.S.-Japan alliance in the comprehensive security in East Asia. Well, um, back to the overall project, the traditional and non-traditional security issues uh, include human security, economic security, and energy security in the region. Uh, with future prospect of East Asian community and U.S. bilateral relations with Japan, Korea, and China. In other words, uh, we examine traditional and non-traditional security issues on the one hand, and U.S. bilateral relations and East Asian community building on the other. Um, well, the, by the same token, we examine how the U.S. bilateral relations influence to the East Asian community and how East Asian community influence the, to the U.S. bilateral relations. Uh, well, and this seminar focuses on the relationship between U.S.-Japan alliance and East Asian community building. And we have uh, two presenters today. The we present the significance of U.S.-Japan alliance uh, from Japan's and U.S. perspectives. Um, I present the Japan's view, and James, uh, in the end of the table, uh, will present the U.S. views. Um, in conclusion, 
um, we have a discussion on the significance of U.S.-Japan alliance in making of the East Asian communities. Uh, I move to my own presentations. Just a moment. Um, my own presentation is the U.S.-Japan alliance um, and East Asian regionalism from Japan's uh, perspectives. Um, I think there are some misunderstanding or misinterpretations on Japan's perspectives or Japan's policies to East Asia for U.S. observers. For example, uh, when Yukio Hatayama became the prime minister, um, it's four years ago, um, he showed the very positive views on the East Asian communities. Then many American people observed the Japan leaves from the United States and going back to the Asia. But um, it is not accurate understandings to the Japanese policy. The America or Asia, or America versus Asia, is a meaningless question for Japanese policymakers. Because for the last 50 or 60 years after the post-war post regimes, the Every Japanese government or every Japanese prime minister uh, answer the same things. That is, the both United States and East Asia is an indispensable partner uh, for Japan. And the Japanese policies for the last two decades have demonstrated this. On the one hand, um, Japan has strengthened the security partnership with the United States in the 1990s and 2000s. On the other hand, Japan also joined the process of East Asian communities. Then the strengthening uh, U.S. partnership and the strengthening East Asian community is not contradictions. Both directions is compatible for Japanese government. The point is uh, how we balance the between U.S. partnership and East Asian communities. Uh, the other point uh, is that the we sometimes distinguish the words between Asia-Pacific and East Asia. If we say East Asia, the community is only limited to Asian countries. But if we say Asia-Pacific, the non-Asian countries, especially United States, uh, would, join, would join the communities. So therefore, in terms of regional community buildings, uh, Japan strategically used the East Asian regionalism and Asia-Pacific regionalism. Well, um, this is a chronology of Japanese policy development of security and economic regionalism. Um, in the left side, in the late 1990s, Japan and the United States have prepared to enhance the security cooperations. Um, in the right side, in sphere, in sphere of regionalism, uh, after the Asian financial crisis, in the late 1990s, a sample three is created and East Asian community building is institutionalized in those years. Well, um, in 2000, um, the Japanese government further legalized for the defense policies and reconstructing the security cooperations with the United States. Uh, after the Cold War decades uh, in the 1990s and 2000, the nature of U.S.-Japan alliance might be changed from bilateral security relations to regional security community or the regional uh, security frameworks. On the other hand, the 
uh, look on the right side. The East Asian Summit uh, has uh, launched in 2005 uh, with uh, Japanese initiatives. The East Asian Summit uh, has developed with non-Asian members, the ASEAN Plus 3 and Plus 6 and Plus 8. And the ASEAN Plus 3 is ASEAN and China, Japan and Korea. And Plus 6 includes the India, Australia and New Zealand. And Plus 8 they also include the United States and Russia. Well, um, in the 1996, the Japan and the United States uh, make the Declaration on the Security. Um, it is symbolizing the, the Japanese um, this, the dual directions. The security cooperation must be include the United States, the, which means the security community must be uh, Asia-Pacific rather than East Asia. And this is, a semi, this is a similar logic of open regionalism which has been emphasized in the APEC. The two include the United States. The regional community must be Asia-Pacific rather than East Asia. On the other hand, the geographically speaking, Asia-Pacific is too broad. That they have different cultures, histories, religions, and language. So they need to emphasize the common values and interests, the, such as democracy, human rights, and any other the liberal values. Uh, accordingly, uh, in the 1997s, the Japan and the United States reviewed the guidelines for Japan-U.S. security corporations. Uh, also, um, they released a joint statement in September 1997. Uh, accordingly, the discourses for Japan-U.S. security corporations have two uh, principal characteristics. The first one is that they emphasize Asia-Pacific security community, not East Asia. And on the other hand, it also emphasizes the common value and interest, such as freedom, democracy, and human rights. In other words, the, during the Cold War, uh, we don't have to justify the alliance by the liberal words, because uh, in the Cold War, we have a clear enemies, so uh, it is a merely bilateral alliance, but today, the U.S.-Japan alliance have a big impact on the regional security framework. Therefore, um, they need to define the regional community, and they need to justify by, by the common values and interests. Well, uh, I back to the Japanese policy practice. In the 2003 and the 2004, uh, Japan pursued numerous defense legislations with response to especially global terrorism and the tensions in the Korean Peninsula. In also in uh, 2003, the United States and Japan uh, made a roadmap for realigning security cooperation and implementations. Uh, also, the, there are many important incidents in the 2011, 12, and, and this years. The East Japan earthquake in 2011 and territorial uh, tensions with Korea and China uh, in the last year, and finally. In the last week, the Prime Minister Abe and President Obama uh, had a meeting, and they also reaffirmed the importance of U.S.-Japan alliance, US alliance and a partnership with China and Korea. Well, <clears throat> uh, in conclusion, uh, 
I have some notes for conceptualization for U.S.-Japan relations and East Asian communities. The firstly, there is a distinction between East Asian regionalism and Asia-Pacific regionalism. Uh, the security cooperation prefers the Asia-Pacific regionalism. And secondly, this Asia-Pacific regionalism emphasizes the shared common values and interests. Um, it is also demonstrated the Aso Taro's public speech in 2007. You know, Aso Taro is a financial minister today, uh, but uh, he was a foreign minister in 2007, and he provided the idea of arc of freedom and prosperity and value diplomacies. The idea is that the making the community that shared liberal values and common prosperities. So, uh, Finally, Asia-Pacific regionalism and shared common liberal values are the key to understand U.S.-Japan security cooperations, and it might bridge the gap between the United States, their presence in Asia, and uh, East Asian community buildings. Uh, thank you. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, there's, uh, there, there's a lot to consider there, and I, and I, I just want to take a, a quick moment to highlight um, I, th I think it would be interesting to explore a little bit today this, this idea of zero-sum versus plus-sum uh, uh, products in the alliance based on Japan's policy toward East Asia community building that was uh, certainly on display in the, in the Hatoyama era, and, and now even we, could, we think about it as, as people look at a new administration in South Korea. Uh, will Madam Pak, uh, President Pak, turn toward China and away from the alliance, or you know, is it really zero sum, or are there plus some strategies here? And this idea of value diplomacy and its compatibility with East Asia community building, uh, and how ASEAN and others in Asia would would will respond to to that kind of quality in the context of, of uh, alliance outreach and community building. So, a couple questions that came to my mind, uh, but let's let's turn to Jim. Princip for uh, for some of his thoughts, and we'll we'll, we'll build as we go. Thanks, Jim. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the elusive East Asian community. Thirty years ago, um, excuse me. It's on. Maybe just pull it a little closer. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thirty years ago, uh, I was first involved in an early effort to build an Asian Pacific community. I was then on the staff of the Subcommittee on Asian and Pacific Affairs, uh, chaired by then uh, Congressman Lester Wolf, who was a great entrepreneur, who came up with the idea of a pan-Pacific community organization. I thought that was quite interesting and appealing and had some interest across the region. Well, unfortunately, uh, Lester lost an election. We lost our jobs, and, <laughs> and the, uh, the vision did not get very far at that time. Thirty years later, uh, where do we stand today? Well, when I look at East Asia and talk about communities, I see basically three East Asian communities, and they're not necessarily integrated. In fact, I think they're going in different directions. Uh, the first East Asian community is the economic community. This is the hot community. Then there is a warm, uh, fuzzy, multilateral diplomatic community. And finally, there is a cold, bilateral, political, and security community. I'll just keep these in mind and try and walk through them very briefly. Uh, start with the economics, the economic community that exists today. 
And it's clear that the region is marked by economic integration and a China-centered production network. China today is the number one trading partner, Japan, the ROK, Australia, ASEAN, across the board. China is the, driving for the economic driving force in terms of the region. There are also a number of trade liberalizing or trade promoting uh, efforts that are going on throughout the region. It goes back to APEC to start with. There's a trade, a, a unilateral trade liberalizing effort. Subsequently, we've come to, come to uh, witness an evolution of, various, of FTAs across the region of various standards. Uh, there's the China ASEAN FTA, the Chorus FTA, the US Australia FTA, the Japan Singapore, Singapore FTA. There is RECEP, there is EEP, and there is TPP. There is the Japan-China ROK trilateral efforts at uh, a FTA. Um, to me, when I look at all this, the policy challenge somewhere down the road is going to be how do you integrate these various institutions and organizations which are operating on very different standards and very different values. This is going to be a fundamental challenge if you are going to build a real community. And then moving on, there is the warm and fuzzy multilateral diplomatic community. Uh, with, and over the past 30 years, we've seen a proliferation of multilateral organization, uh, organizations and institutions. There's ASEAN. There's the ARF. There's the ARF senior officials meeting. There's the ADDM plus defense ministers meeting. And the, the ADDM and then the ADDM plus there's the Shanghai Cooperative Organization. There's the EAS, which pointed out earlier. There's the ASEAN 3, the ASEAN 6, and the ASEAN 8. I mean, we're really at a point where hardly a week goes by without, without an ASEAN-related meeting uh, across the region. At the highest level, it brings le leaders together. Together, uh, Excuse me, my, I spent two and a half hours at the dentist today, and I'm still not uh, speaking correctly. So right, you're doing great. I have the extra pills if I need them, but I'm going to try and get through this. <laughs> Um, and um, it brings leaders together to discuss uh, different security issues that affect the region. For example, North Korea, the East China Sea, Thai Cambodia. Um, but doesn't bring leaders together to solve problems. Um, there have been some recognized low-level successes that Jim was part of, I think, when he was at the Pentagon, multilateral building multilateral co cooperation with respect to uh, HA, humanitarian affairs, disaster relief, medicine, uh, uh, avian flu, that kind of multilateral cooperation uh, that it really engages the militaries, uh, the senior leaders at, at this level. But when it comes to efforts to establish a code of conduct in, in, the, uh, in the South China Sea, we really are a very long way from a rules-based order necessary for the development of an East Asian community. And looking at efforts over the past couple years, I, I, I don't think, I don't, I'm not expecting great progress in this area uh, down the road. And this, this brings us finally to the, um, the third community. This is the bilateral, the cold bilateral political and security community. Marked by unresolved territorial issues, Japan, China, the Senkakos, the Aoyutai, Japan, Korea, uh, Takashima, Dokdo, 
Japan, Russia, the Northern Territories, the ROK in China, some submerged reef. There's Taiwan that still exists as a fundamental political problem. Thai-Cambodian border, uh, the North Korean nuclear issue. Uh, there are a host of security issues that are out there, political security issues that uh, really affect the evolution of a political community. And then on top of that, we have the issue that everyone here recognizes as history. Um, to my mind, Frank Fukuyama was wrong. History never ended. Uh, it's alive and well in East Asia, and I think it has a very long life ahead, judging from the reactions that we've seen over the past couple of years. And I think there's, it's, this political community is also marked by unstated but very real efforts to define the nature of the regional community, the regional order. Is it going to be a China-centric order, or is it going to be a rules-based international order? I think the point made, I think it was very important to Foreign Minister Aso's speech, uh, the arc of freedom and prosperity, I think was a clear challenge to Chinese visions of order in the region to set out a democratic open order uh, that would support a real uh, East Asian community. So um, these are the political and security problems that exist at a bilateral that continue to make, I, to my mind, the formation of a real community exceedingly difficult. Now, so where does that bring us to uh, today? How does this affect the U.S.-Japan efforts to build the support in the East Asian community? Well, during his visit to Washington last week, Prime Minister Abe set out three tasks for Japan. The first, to serve as a leading promoter of rules-based order. The second, to serve as a guardian of the global commons, in particular the maritime commons, in which so much of the world's prosperity depends. And finally, to enhance cooperation with the United States, the ROK, Australia, and other democracies. Now, I believe these objectives should be joint goals of the alliance, and that to the extent that we can cooperate across the board in, the, in, in these various uh, areas, we can really help to build a stable and secure East Asian community. I'll stop here. Mike? That's great. I'll, uh, yeah, let me... Let me turn it over to, to Mike right away before I – I'll interject. I'll, I'll add some comments later because I, I keep coming back to this issue of interests, which Professor Olga raised and the idea of plus-sum, zero-sum approaches, interests and values, and, and can you – and how that connects to the three categories in a, in a sense that uh, Jim was talking about. It's, it's probably the easiest to overcome that in the, in the economic financial realm and then harder as you as you move into some of these other categories. But Mike, let me give you the tough task of adding to all of this, <laughs> this discussion that's that's gone on. Yes. Uh, thank you very much, Jim. I, I was worried that if I went last, I wouldn't have anything uh, uh, to add because I would uh, agree with all the previous uh, speakers. And, and I think that's uh, largely uh, true. Um, but uh, you know, since um, I, I think uh, uh, both uh, Professor Olga and Jim have probably emphasize the, the uh, positive sum aspect uh, in U.S.-Japan uh, relations regarding community uh, building, although I very much uh, agree 
uh, how elusive uh, having a, a real uh, East Asian security community uh, is. I think what I want to emphasize is maybe kind of some of the tensions uh, that uh, might exist between the United States and uh, uh, Japan. You know, Professor Olga uh, uh, is very polite, uh, uh, but he referred uh, to a, a meeting that I participated in in Tokyo in, in January, and it was a panel uh, precisely on, on this. Uh, and there were uh, five uh, panelists. Uh, uh, one was a prominent uh, political scientist from Japan. Uh, another uh, was a former foreign ministry high official uh, who served uh, inside the prime minister's office uh, during the Hatoyama administration. Uh, another was a former finance ministry high official who was one of the architects of Japan's uh, regional uh, financial uh, uh, policy. And then uh, I was uh, one of two Americans. The other uh, was an official from the U.S. Uh, embassy. Uh, and uh, I was put in a surprising position of having to defend uh, U.S. policy uh, when usually I tend to be quite <laughs> quite critical. And uh, uh, I... Um, uh, the Japanese participants were not as polite as, as Professor Olga, and they were quite scathing in terms of their criticism uh, in terms of how uh, obstructionist uh, uh, the United States uh, is uh, uh, regarding uh, Japan's policy towards Asia. And, and uh, I, I had to uh, disagree, uh, but acknowledge that there was a, uh, uh, an element of truth. And, and maybe I should start... Uh, by the way uh, Hatoyama's uh, view of the East Asian community uh, was viewed in Washington, and Professor Olga uh, uh, kind of politely uh, disagreed with the American take on this. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think if you read uh, uh, um, Jeffrey Bader's excellent book on uh, Obama and China's uh, rise, uh, there is a very telling passage, uh, a couple of pages, of his assessment of uh, Prime Minister Hatoyama's East Asian uh, community idea. And he says uh, that uh, he was shocked uh, that uh, uh, the leader of our most important ally in Asia would be embracing an idea uh, that was very similar uh, to Prime Minister Mahathir of uh, Malaysia's idea of an East Asian uh, economic caucus, a vision uh, that would exclude uh, the United States uh, uh, from uh, Asia. Uh, I met with uh, uh, Prime Minister Hatoyama uh, soon after the book came out, and, and uh, I said, well, you know, is this true? Uh, and he emphatically said no, and, and, but I didn't necessarily believe him, so I did some research. Uh, and I, I went through uh, all of his public statements uh, about uh, this, and it's, it's interesting. Um, one of his first press conferences after he became uh, prime minister on September 16, 2009, uh, he was asked about the East Asian community. Uh, and he says, this idea certainly is not intended to exclude the U.S. dollar or the United States. Quite the contrary, as a step beyond this initiative, I believe we should envisage an Asia-Pacific community as uh, uh, Professor Olga mentioned, and I do not think that this could readily be achieved without uh, the United States. This was uh, an early press conference, uh, and, and then uh, uh, a little bit more than a week uh, uh, later, he comes to the United Nations and gives a General Assembly speech, and he makes a reference uh, to the East Asia community, and he emphasizes the principle of open uh, regionalism. 
Uh, in October 2009, uh, the time when uh, 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 Jeff Bader uh, mentions that Hatoyama is pursuing a kind of a Mahatir type uh, uh, idea, uh, Prime Minister Hatoyama, while he is in Southeast Asia, says that the idea is not exclusive uh, and states that the United States uh, would be a member of this. And then in his major uh, uh, speech about the East Asian community idea, uh, he starts out the speech in Singapore uh, uh, with uh, uh, the point uh, that the United States and the alliance is the linchpin of Japan's foreign policy. And then he talks about uh, bridging uh, Asia and his support uh, for the ASEAN plus six idea uh, and the expansive free trade area for the Asia uh, uh, Pacific. So the only place where I could see that an official of the Hatoyama government uh, would talk about the exclusion of the United States uh, was when uh, Foreign Minister Okada uh, uh, talked about uh, an East Asian summit process that uh, uh, was basically the ASEAN uh, plus three uh, plus three. And then he said uh, the United States would not be uh, a part of this. Now, uh, Mr. Hatayama is too much of a nice guy to be prime minister, uh, and he basically did not uh, uh, rail in his, uh, uh, his rogue uh, foreign minister. Uh, but uh, the other thing is that prime minister, uh, 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 foreign minister Okada was basically saying the same thing that prime minister Koizumi had said uh, when he had been uh, prime uh, minister. Uh, and, and there was not much concern then, precisely because Mr. Koizumi was doing what he could uh, to buttress the U.S.-Japan alliance. Now, I go through this uh, because when I look at the historical record, uh, the United States has generally tended to be ambivalent. Uh, you know, despite the efforts of uh, Jim on Capitol Hill, ambivalent uh, about uh, regionalism in Asia. And it's in marked contrast to the U.S. approach in Europe, uh, that uh, uh, fostering a European community was front and center uh, a part of uh, U.S. strategic policy. But it was not the case uh, in terms of uh, East Asia. Now, when one looks at the diplomatic record, uh, from the 1950s, uh, Japan, as an agent, as someone, as a country that is trying to find degrees of freedom probes the outer boundaries of the Cold War divide uh, and tries to transgress it, uh, but the United States pulls Japan in. And the formula that, the, uh, that Japan kind of begins to develop is to separate economics and politics. So preserve the U.S. kind of Cold War divide in Asia, uh, but permeate that boundary uh, through economic uh, relations. And even on the economic front, it's, it's kind of amazing that, you know, for example, Japan early on was supporting the, uh, the creation of the Asia Development Bank, uh, but initially the United States uh, uh, resisted uh, this. Uh, it was Japan and Prime Minister Ohida that promoted the notion of a Pacific uh, Basin uh, concept. When Japan talks about cooperative security, and this was an idea that the Brookings Institution uh, promoted uh, soon after the uh, end of the Cold War. Uh, when that notion of a cooperative security 
idea emerges uh, in the Higuchi report. Uh, it is uh, 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 criticized frontally by two very good friends of mine here in, in Washington, uh, D.C. So uh, I would think it would be great if the United States and Japan could work together for the construction of an East Asian community, but unfortunately, uh, there is a great deal of ambivalence and suspicion. Uh, and although it's ultimately positive sum, I think there is kind of a, a, a negative uh, uh, sum uh, aspect to it. Nevertheless, what's striking to me is despite uh, uh, the, uh, the mythology of Japan being a reactive uh, state, uh, I find it incredible how much Japan seizes opportunities to promote Asian regionalism despite the resistance uh, from uh, the United States. And they do it, uh, uh, and they have been doing it uh, by leading from behind. And in many ways, it's a response uh, to uh, policies that uh, they disagree with uh, uh, by the United States or they're concerned about the United States. For example, uh, Japan was concerned about the North American Free Trade uh, Agreement as well as the formation of the European uh, 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 Union uh, because uh, Japan would be hurt by this kind of regionalization. And so out of that, uh, Japan developed the notion uh, of that finally became uh, APEC uh, to prevent the divide uh, in the Pacific. Uh, but deferred to Australia to promote uh, the idea. Uh, when the United States uh, was one, uh, looked like it was pulling back militarily from uh, Asia after the end of the Cold War, and at the same time the United States was pressuring Japan uh, to be a more proactive security uh, player, uh, Japan's response was to promote uh, security dialogues uh, for the region which was initially resisted by the United States, but later becomes the ASEAN Regional Forum. After the Jap uh, you know, Japanese were concerned about the U.S. policy towards uh, the East Asian financial crisis, it was Japan uh, that worked with other Asian countries, and you see the emergence of the ASEAN plus three. So despite uh, uh, you know, foreign minister and now finance minister Asso's talk about this arc of freedom. I mean, you know, it's great bumper sticker. Uh, but, in, but in the end, when you look at actual policy, Japan has promoted uh, regionalism, and it has tended uh, uh, to do it from behind, and to the extent uh, that it's uh, uh, kind of framed it, it has been an ASEAN-centered uh, regional uh, approach. Uh, now, uh, finally, uh, 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 you know, Jam had covered a lot of uh, what I want to say about economics, uh, political, uh, uh, and, and the security uh, side. Uh, just on the security side, you know, there's no question that uh, we're moving towards, you know, what I would call a soft multilateral, uh, multilateralization of the U.S. Uh, uh, the, uh, alliance network, and I think that's a good uh, thing, and it uh, resonates with uh, Prime Minister Abe's notion of the diamond, uh, U.S., Australia, uh, U.S., Japan, uh, uh, Japan, India, uh, uh, Japan, Australia. So uh, greater security cooperation among these uh, 
Four, I was delighted uh, that during his CSIS speech, Abe also included uh, a Korea uh, in, the, in the mix. And then there's also Japan promoting uh, capacity building in Southeast Asia. Uh, but the key question then is, what do you do about China? Uh, how do you bring uh, China in? And part of this can be done bilaterally. The United States does it through the strategic and economic dialogue. I hope that eventually we'll return to summits between Japan uh, and, and China. Uh, now, we have the East Asian Summit, which is all-inclusive, and China is a part of it. But China had preferred a 10 plus 6 process, uh, not the 10, uh, uh, or, or the 10 plus 3, right. uh, and, and, and not the 10 plus uh, 8 that we now have with the East Asian Summit. Uh, and so this is not going to give you know, a lot of reassurance to the Chinese. And it seems to me uh, that uh, hopefully the time will come when we can have a trilateral kind of U.S.-Japan-China uh, dialogue uh, and continue to develop the Japan ROK-China. And when you look at the Japan ROK-China, what's really surprising is how much the dialogue has moved in terms of non-traditional security issues. Certainly it, it can't uh, resolve the difficult territorial uh, issues, uh, but uh, I think all three countries see the need for greater uh, security cooperation. Now, finally, I'll end with the relationship uh, between the economics and, and the politics. Uh, and you know, one of the things that's uh, most surprising to me was, uh, has been how in this latest crisis in Sino-Japanese relations, uh, the Japanese business community, uh, except for maybe uh, one or two uh, business leaders, have been pretty quiet uh, about the deterioration in Sino-Japanese relations. Uh, I would have expected that the Japanese business community, for economic reasons, would be up in front uh, to talk about the importance of stabilizing uh, the Sino-Japanese relations uh, 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 ship. Uh, and... Um, uh, you know, one of my good friends from Japan answered the puzzle uh, for me. And it was that despite the deterioration in Sino-Japanese relations, political relations, and acknowledging that there has been a decline in trade between China and Japan, uh, that the economic relationship between these two countries are surprisingly good. And he expects investments to continue to increase. And so what we now may be seeing is that it's not just that we have kind of hot economics and cold pol uh, politics and security, uh, but the, the insulation of the economic side of things uh, despite the deterioration in political security uh, relations. And so then the big question for me is how long can this insulation survive, but also to what extent that the warmth of the economic side can eventually spill over uh, to the security dimension. So, fi uh, uh, so finally, uh, you know, I think when we look back at the first couple years uh, of the Obama administration and the tensions in U.S.-Japan relations, and when we were concerned that Japan was maybe tilting towards China, which I don't think it, it was, uh, maybe if uh, it, it would serve America's interests, if there was a little bit more uh, community uh, building uh, in East Asia, and then we wouldn't have 
these ridiculous territorial disputes, and we can uh, move forward in terms of historical reconciliation. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much, uh, Mike and Jim. Those are very interesting and, and, uh, and, and useful comments. Um, before I add a, a, a couple thoughts of my own and we open it up to, to, to Q&A and discussion, I wanted to give uh, Professor Olga a chance to, if you had any thoughts or reactions to some of the comments that uh, Mike and Jim made. Uh, if to you do. Ma Mike and Jim? Yeah, or additional thoughts if you wanted to. Uh, I think it is good for after the after, after questions. questions. Okay. Um, no, that's fine. Um, one thought that occurred to me, um, I mean, Mike, I, I, I totally agree in terms of, of some of the historical issues that, that you brought up in terms of efforts, fits and starts of, of uh, community building and regionalism in, in East Asia. I guess one question I have to start out is it always made sense to me that there was a place for regionalism or, or an East Asian community that had the U.S. as a part of it and also a place for community building that did not have the U.S. as a part of it. It made perfect sense that both would be uh, in existence and could be compatible, but it, I also understand why the United States was suspicious at times of, of Japan's initiatives in this regard. Primarily, if I go back to the issue of interests and values, I don't know, 20 years ago, interests and values were, were not quite as tight, perhaps, as, as they are today. Certainly, economic interests, uh, we saw ourselves in, in a more competitive uh, position vis-a-vis -vis Japan, and we were coming off the trade tensions and that kind of, uh, of, of relationship. And, and the, uh, uh, I think we viewed Japan's efforts in East Asia or uh, some of its foreign policies as more mercantilistic than, 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 than we would. Uh, have with, with our emphasis on human rights and democracy building and putting that first and foremost, whereas I think Japan had that second, you know, in, in, in some cases. Uh, but I wonder if that still holds true today. I mean, I would feel very comfortable uh, of an East Asian community without the United States that had a strong voice for Japan because I, I believe our interests and values so closely align even more now. And you have a more capable and vocal uh, South Korea in the mix that has, again, not identical, but more similar uh, interests and values in this context. And so that uh, the Asia community that without the United States that could emerge now in some ways and some of the Southeast Asian countries might make the United States feel more comfortable about not getting in the way uh, of that. So that, that was one thought that popped into my head. And another question I'd like to throw out before we open it up more broadly, is, is the role of institutions. And as, as I was listening to our panelists talk, uh, can we have community building? Can, can community building be effective without institutions? Um, I don't know if that's a, kind of a, a, an old way of thinking that, that we need institutions. And if so, we've, right now we've got a lot of frameworks, not necessarily institutions in the, in the sense that they have buildings and headquarters and, and, and permanent staff and this and that. Uh, we have a, a ton of different frameworks. And I wonder what, how much emphasis should we put on trying to transition some of those frameworks into institutions? Or is that a, 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 a wasted effort? 
this regard. And I don't know if Professor Olga or if, if uh, either of our discussants have any thoughts about one or two of those questions or comments that I raised. Well, well, well just, just very quickly uh, on your uh, two points. Yeah, I, I certainly think that there is uh, uh, some convergence between the United States and, and Japan, either on ec economics, uh, on kind of democratic uh, values. Uh, but uh, still, I think uh, uh, there's a gap. Um, uh, for example, in terms of democracy promotion uh, or the relationship between uh, the state and the economy, I, I think uh, you know, uh, it's not that Japan has become the, like the United States, but it's just that Japan is less of a competitor, uh, and, and that's that's why there isn't uh, the friction. But uh, you know, when I look at uh, 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 Japanese uh, policy. Uh, it's, it's, it hasn't converged uh, with the United States, and and the and the ROK, uh, uh, you know, too, uh, there has been convergence, but it's, it's partial uh, convergence. And then when you look at Southeast Asia, uh, you know, I don't see, uh, I mean, I see a, a, a big gap between the United States uh, uh, and, and those countries. And um, uh, your question by institutions, uh, that's a that's a great one. Uh, but I think the Asian experiment is, uh, is you know, to think about regionalism without kind of the legalistic perspective uh, that we have in Europe. Uh, you know, I see it as kind of a network, organic uh, type of regionalism. And on the economic side, it's really the bottom-up process, which I think that has been uh, uh, the most critical, the kind of the formalization at the top. Uh, is not as important as as kind of the bottom up uh, uh, proliferation of regional production on networks. Yeah, I was just going to say that I agree with that. Is that it, it really has been the bottom up that has that has driven the the economic dimension of this? I think it's been formalized through a lot of these institutions and organizations, but it really at, at its core has been it's been driven by uh, by business. Uh, yeah. I just want to pick up on one point that uh, Mike made that I thought is, is uh, when he talked about the the economics, the installation of the Japan-China uh, economic relationship. Uh, I think that's very accurate. Uh, I think it is the it is the foundation of that relationship that really provides kind of a floor through which the elevator can't go any further, it can't crash. Uh, I think it's very similar to the relationship we have with China where the economic relationship really is the, it would, has held this relationship together through some very, very difficult times. Um, I remember <clears throat> I was on the planning staff of the State Department at Tiananmen, and at the political level, the re relationship just crashed. But the relationship kept moving forward because of the business ties that were so uh, profoundly strong. And when I think about it, you put it in the context of skyscrapers, you know, in terms of the U.S.-Japan and U.S.-China relationship, um, the, the, the foundation, the economic foundation is, is very strong, and it, it kind of supports the relationship. The elevator go, can go up or down, but it's not going to go through the, it's not going to crash through the foundation. It's going to stabilize the relationship on almost, at, at almost every in, in, instance. There's a difference about a high up, how high the elevator can go in terms of progress in developing relations. And I think 
because of the difference in values between the U.S. and China and the similarity of values with the U.S. and, and, and Japan, there's a certain limit as to how, what you know, on a hundred stories, how high up the elevator can go in terms of the U.S.-China relationship. And there's very less of, I, there's a greater opportunity for growth in the U.S.-Japan relationship because of that very similar sharing of values. I think I want to take the stairs with this elevator crashing all the time. <laughs> okay, um, the my point out the Hatoyama and East Asian communities, but uh, I think the almost all prime ministers of Japan argued the balance between Asia and the United States, and Koizumi also emphasized the ASEAN plus three and the East Asian communities. So I think the difference among Koizumi, Aso, and Hatoyama it's a not substantial difference. They, they just uh, provide the different emphasis to the regional communities. And also, I don't think the Japan promoted the policies on regionalism, uh, or Japan promoted ASEAN-centered regionalism. Um, because uh, I think the answer is East Asia Summit. Um, in the East Asia Summit, the Japan proposed the uh, to include the non-Asian members, uh, like ASEAN plus six and ASEAN plus eight, yeah. So I think um, Japan um, does not necessarily the, promote the policies on regionalism. Interesting. Well, we have a good half hour for for questions and answers, and uh, I'll call on people. I ask if you can identify yourself and and wait for a microphone, or in reverse order. Um, Ellen Frost for the East-West Center and the National Defense University. Thank you for taking my question. Um, Mike, I have a rather different perspective, I think, on U.S. policy towards uh, regional agreements in Asia that exclude the United States. It's a, it's a much more positive one, um, and I'd like to present it for your comment. Uh, the United States began wrestling with this right after World War II in the case of Europe. And since then, uh, I would argue that our policy has been benign and, and positive with some provisos. Provisos such as not imposed uh, against the will, i.e. Soviet Union, um, not designed to undermine an alliance or an international institution, blah, blah, designed to promote trade, not restrict it, and so forth. Um, I think what um, – and I would further argue that in, in even in today's context, the U.S. government has been more positive than I think you give it credit for. Certainly the, the Treasury Department has strongly supported Chiang Mai and all the CMI stuff. Um, and uh, we, you know, took a series of initiatives that you know about um, that I think des were designed to signal our support for Asian um, regionalism. I think what you may be thinking of is that there was some concern that China was marginalizing Japan in, in the non-financial ASEAN plus three context, and also that the RCEP and some of these uh, bilateral FTAs were very, very low standard agreements by the uh, terms of, that we uh, expect, you know, in our own agreements. But I don't think that uh, amounts to an overall negative attitude. I would argue it's actually the contrary. Thanks. Thanks, Al. Yeah, well, um, I mean, in, in many ways, what you're reflecting is my my defense of U.S. Uh, policy when <laughs> I had to defend it uh, in, in Japan, uh, and it's definitely not as negative uh, as I characterized it uh, t uh, today. Uh, you know, I was kind of sharpening uh, uh, the, the lines of debate, but in uh, in in certain uh, areas, you know, there are initial periods of resistance. 
and, and then I think the United States really uh, comes to embrace it. Uh, and it's not as if the United States has often uh, kind of uh, embrace the uh, Japanese initiatives uh, at at the very beginning. So, uh, you know, I, I see it as as more ambivalence, and then uh, Japan, uh, uh, you know, you know, pursuing, uh, you know, for, you know, for example, after the East Asian financial crisis, uh, uh, the United States came down very hard on Japan, uh, and uh, and then the Japanese were flabbergasted that Bill Clinton was in China. Uh, uh, with the Chinese criticizing uh, Japan and, and, in a sense, blaming Japan for what had happened and praising uh, 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 China. Uh, and that really rubbed the J Japanese uh, the wrong way. And then the Japanese worked quietly uh, to work with China uh, to change the Chinese view. And then eventually we had the Chiang Mai Initiative. Now, later on, uh, the, uh, the United States may have embraced it. But uh, so, uh, you know, in the end, I think uh, America uh, gets comfortable uh, uh, with this. But I, I think there are many cases in when there's kind of initial ambivalence or even uh, resistance. Do you have other questions? Please. Hi, my name is um, so we got a microphone. Hi, my name is Joelle Metcalf uh, from the Graduate School of Asia-Pacific Studies at Waseda University. I have an Article 9 question, but uh, bear with me. Uh, so when I think of security communities, one of the things that comes to mind, especially with Europe, is collective self-defense. So um, because Japan, by you know Article 9, cannot participate in collective self-defense, um, it seems like obviously a traditional security um, you know, integration might, you know, not be on the table. However, um, supposing that the revision allows for collective self-defense, would J Japan be likely to uh, start an arrangement for cooperative security? And um, so if Japan does revise the article, I mean, um, it could be taken one way or another, but if, if conducted well, if, you know, portrayed as, you know, we want to participate in, you know, a, a collective security community to keep the um, security of the Asia Pacific, um, do you think that that would be something that, that would be possible? Because um, that would be good for the United States, but it would be good for the security of Asia as well. Is there anyone in particular you wanted to direct that? Um, no, if anybody wants to answer that one. Okay. Well, you've got to, Jim, do you want to clarify the, the there's a one piece to clarify, I think, which is that uh, Japan reserves uh, uh, the right, it, it, it acknowledges that it has the right to collective self-defense, uh, but, but it chooses, it interprets, its current interpretation is that it, 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 it's not able to exercise that right. Uh, my understanding is it's, it believes it is possible to change that interpretation without necessarily revising the Constitution or Article 9, but um, although article a, a revision would make it even more clear. But, uh, but, but, but still, that's a very pertinent question in the context of current debate about whether or not to change that interpretation. Jim, do you want to? I was just going to say, it really, to my mind, it really depends on how it is packaged. Uh, to me, that, that, that's fundamental. Uh, I think it certainly opens the door to greater U.S.-Japan security cooperation, and I think that's a good thing across the board in terms of building regional stability and security. At the same time, there are, I mean, when you look at what's happened in terms of the Japan-China relationship, 
and the, the changing views that the Chinese have had about the security alliance. I think if you go back during the Cold War, you know, it, they weren't thrilled about it, but it was accepted as a way of constraining Japan, Japan's remilitarization. They could live with that. But then I'd say if you look from the period 2000-2005, uh, as the U.S. and Japan moved towards greater security cooperation, the Japanese uh, deployed in terms of support for Iraqi freedom. Uh, Koizumi making the speech at the, at the Defense Academy saying, well, if we don't support our ally when it needs our help, we can't expect it to support us when we need it in terms of North Korea, potentially. Um, and the Chinese watched that, and I think you started to see a, very, a, a change in the way the Chinese analysts looked at the alliance. They saw it, they saw it as moving away from constraining Japan as towards con containing China. So I, I think in this context, it really depends on how you know, the, the diplomatic groundwork, uh, and I think it would take an awful lot of spade work to make this one happen right in the, anywhere in the immediate future. Yeah, uh, well, uh, you know, I've, I've confused many uh, Japanese friends uh, because I'm kind of known to be dovish uh, and, and pretty uh, uh, reluctant uh, to use military force. And, and, you know, and I've been for a dramatic reduction of the Marine Corps uh, from uh, Okinawa. But I've always been for the reinterpretation of, of Article uh, 9 so that Japan can exercise its right. To exercise the right, to not exercise the right, that they have seems to be kind of a silly uh, interpretation. And unfortunately, Japan has made this into such a big deal, and that's why it might create these public relations problems. But you know, every member of the United Nations uh, uh, has that right. China has that right. Why can China uh, complain about it? It's, it's enshrined in the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty, so it's really a no-brainer issue. Uh, and... Uh, my my uh, dovish friends in Japan say, well, do, if Japan reinterprets the Constitution this way, doesn't it mean that any time the United States asks uh, Japan to use force uh, with uh, uh, the United States, we, we have to do that? I said, no. That, Japan, as a sovereign state, can still say no to the United States. It's just that you can't use the excuse of the Constitution uh, to say no. And that's what makes the, the alliance so unhealthy. And I can imagine a case in which China may need the help of Japan. I mean, you know, a Chinese ship may have some problems uh, with, with a piracy attack. You know, Japan should be able to help if it chose to do so from policy. So I just think it's a no-brainer, but it's unfortunate that in Japanese discourse it's become such a, a big deal. Can I – I'll just add briefly because there's a, a part of your question that suggests – this idea of that if that restriction is lifted, then that opens the door to some kind of regional security cooperation that heretofore does not exist. Um, and I wouldn't see a direct connection in that regard. Uh, uh, just working in the Defense Department on minilateral and multilateral security cooperation initiatives, we tend to do a lot of work in the humanitarian assistance disaster relief field, especially disaster relief where the role of, of the military uh, is, can be significant. And it's a it's a fairly non uh, uh, you know sensitive way. It's a it's a it's an acceptable way to get militaries together to work together in capacity building, uh, confidence building, and also develop standard operating procedures for working in multilateral coalitions. But even in the disaster relief field, 
uh, one of the things they tried to negotiate in the ASEAN and ARF forums is a, a rapid response agreement or some kind of uh, pre-approved um, terms under which foreign countries could introduce military personnel. It's kind of like a status of forces agreement, but it's temporary status of forces agreement, but it's, it's, they, they tried to stay away from that terminology because that was so sensitive. Um, but it was really just to say, okay, if soldiers are coming in to help deliver aid and this and that, there are some basic rules that protect them legally, and there are some obligations and, and, and rights that go both ways. They could agree roughly on a, an, a template or an outline of, of what that would look like so that that would not be anything that would hold up a multilateral response to a major disaster in a, in a, in a member country. But they still have not been able to approve that. Um, there's, there's great sensitivity there. So the idea that somehow they'd be able to take another step even beyond you know, some kind of actual coordinated regional combat role, I, I think, is, is, is a, a long way away. And the closest we'll get is this idea of coalitions of the willing to participate perhaps in certain kind of police-related or maintenance of public order-related um, uh, activities, primarily in the maritime domain, so counter-piracy and to some extent non-proliferation or, or, or that realm. And that'll be about as far we, as we go. But I, too, would still be a big, certainly a big supporter of reinterpretation for Japan's participation in peacekeeping operations and for missile defense purposes and others. But um, do you, would you like to answer? Uh, yes. Um, I basically agree with Jim, but um, I think the collective security framework, uh, no, the Regional security framework um, does not necessarily uh, have to include the collective securities. For example, uh, in the case of ARF, ASEAN Regional Forum, um, they don't assume the collective securities. They, they, uh, they have a mailing and they are adjusting the, the regional, uh, collective, uh, regional security conflict. But uh, it doesn't include the collective securities. So I think um, even in the present, uh, Article 9 conditions, um, it is possible for Japan um, to cooperate like uh, ARF types mm -hmm. uh, security communities. Yes, sir. Coming behind you. Oh, good. <coughs> Thank you very much. I think I really enjoyed this discussion. Particularly the points made by Thanks. And can you let us know, uh, identify yourself, please? I am uh, Professor K.V. Kesavan from India. And presently, I'm attached to Wilson Center. <clears throat> I really enjoyed the discussion on uh, this very important topic. In particular, I would like to uh, mention the points made by Professor Mochizuki. He rightly pointed out that uh, the currency crisis was a turning point, in my opinion. I think that was the time when Japan really wanted to take an important initiative they talked about the need for establishing the Asian Monetary Fund, etc. But I think Japan was discouraged by the United States from going ahead with all those initiatives. In fact, that was a, that was a turning point in the sense many Japanese felt that the ESA had really let them down. For example, I think Mike really referred to the policies pursued by President Clinton, the passing of Japan, etc., etc. <coughs> 
Later, of course, we have long years of poisoning, about six years. And in my opinion, I think even his policy towards the Asian community was really very faulty. In the sense that he totally neglected Asian countries, and he thought that to have robust relationship with USA was just enough to, to take care of Japan's relations with, with Asian countries. Therefore, I think those six years were really, in my opinion, were really wasted in terms of building up the community in Asia. Just look back again. For example, Japanese Prime Minister Mori, for example, he talked about, he went to India and talked about the need for building a global partnership with India. Why? Why do you want to have a global partnership with India, particularly two years after India had really conducted nuclear tests? For three long years, from 1998 until 2001, there was no relationship between India and, uh, and Japan. But suddenly, Mori goes and then talks about the need for building a global partnership with, with India. Therefore, I think uh, that, that some, whenever there is no balance between U.S. alliance and then relations with Asia, I think the community cause really suffered a lot. I think as long as Japan maintained a real balance between its alliance with USA, relations and, and relations with, uh, with Asia, I think it was really respected in uh, Asian countries. Now, I would also like to refer to the, the question of Myanmar, for example. See, for a long time, Japan was having very close relations with Myanmar. Even today, Japan is regarded as one of the friends of Myanmar. But why suddenly Japan stopped its relations with uh, Myanmar? Due to pressure from the United States. But then all of a sudden, U.S. has changed its policy towards Myanmar, and now it's encouraging Japan to go there in a good way. And that is what is happening. In fact, Japan was really interested in uh, integrating Myanmar with ASEAN affairs. It was only United States which really stood in the way of that. Therefore, I, thought, I think Alliance has got something to do with the kind of relations that Japan has always had with, with Asian countries. Thank you. Interesting. So, um, so you would say that, uh, that, that Japan is essentially being its policy toward the region is being strongly influenced by the alliance with the United States in terms of um, – I, I, I don't know if, if our panel has thoughts about that. Certainly on the Myanmar case, I think there, there's some element of what you're talking about there, but they also had the incident of uh, – uh, I think there was the, the killing of the Japanese journalist by, uh, by Myanmar uh, armed forces and uh, a variety of other human rights concerns that – uh, that, that Japan had um, on their own, but uh, does the panel have any thoughts there, or shall we move to? Thank you for your comment. We'll uh, we'll factor that in. Yep. Uh, Chris Reeser with Gallup Polling. Is the Trans-Pacific Partnership viewed as part of this East Asian or Pacific? community or regionalism, or is it viewed as something separate from that? Well, TPP. I think um, to the extent that it can be affected, it would certainly serve to enhance regional, regional economic cooperation. Um, that's the way I look at it. This is something that really promotes regional integration at a very high standard. Uh, it's difficult because there are other countries, you know, that 
don't meet those standards at this time. But you've got to start somewhere. And to me, this is a way of really drawing together uh, economic uh, uh, cooperation. Oh, according to my framework, the distinction between East Asian regionalism and Asia Pacific regionalism, um, I think TPP is like APEC. I mean, the TPP and APEC is the, the Asia Pacific regionalism. They're not um, the very different from East Asian regionalism, like ASEAN Plus Three and East Asia Summit. Uh, yeah. I, I think that's I think that's important. Again, conceptually, how do you think about it? it it's trans-Pacific, and when we've thought about it. You know, strategically from a U.S. perspective, we want to be defined. We want to see the U.S. as being defined as part of the region, and that's why Trans-Pacific is really important to my mind. Uh, that's a strategic interest that we have, and uh, I, I think that very much shapes our thinking. It very much shaped our thinking with regard to APEC uh, versus the East Asian Economic Caucus. Uh, it was on the planning staff at the State Department at the time. And when we saw Mahathir come up with that, we said, wow, this is not where we want to go. We opposed it because it was an ex it worked to exclude the United States from the region. That we did not think was in our interest. And, of course, the Australians stole it from us. <laughs> and there are some in Japan who would argue that uh, beyond a trade and economic rationale for participating in TPP, there is a strategic rationale in the context of strengthening alliance relationships, but relationships among countries that are willing to go to that gold standard, which noticeably does not include China at this point in time. I mean, is it possible that heat or, you know, hot economic community building, whether it's Asia Pacific or, or not, could actually undermine strategic or security uh, uh, relations because it, it makes China feel more vulnerable or excluded or does it run at cross purposes, or or should we view it as completely separate? It's a trade agreement. It has nothing to do with with strategic concerns. Well, there are uh, many uh, trade and uh, and investment liberalization processes going on in TPP. I'm, I'm a great fan of TPP. It's, it's a uh, high uh, standard. Uh, you know, I think this will be a major test for uh, uh, Japan and whether, in fact, there has been a, a greater convergence between the Japanese and U.S. economy. Uh, but uh, the, the, the degree of resistance in Japan shows how much more structural reform uh, there is necessary. But I think we should also remember that there is another process that's in the works uh, is the uh, Japan-China Korea FTA. Uh, the studies for that have concluded, and they may begin to start. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a low standard, uh, but uh, there may be a kind of early benefits for the Japanese, and I wouldn't be surprised if that process moves much more quickly uh, and gets uh, uh, the deal gets signed before uh, the, uh, the TPP. And so in that sense, it's not like uh, China uh, is being excluded from these uh, uh, um, trade liberalization processes. Yeah, the Koreans are very much the same. Height. Right. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Hiro Kawauchi at the World Bank. I think that the, the East Asian community discussed today is obviously different from the European version of the community uh, that is alternate version of the regional integration with uh, single currency or the single central banks or the, the collective defense uh, framework. 
and uh, complete uh, trade liberalization. So I want to ask the panelists whether the, it worth uh, seeking such kind of the ultimate, uh, ultimate uh, uh, regional integration among the Asian countries or the Asian countries are fundamentally different from the European countries, so it is better to seek the, some different direction of the integration. Thank you. Um, I think this is a point that Jim raised, the institutionalized questions. Um, and my answer is the same as the Mike Mochizuki. The East Asian region doesn't have to be the too much institutionalized the, compared with the European Union. So um, I think the ASEAN types or East Asia summit types, the regionalism, um, becomes very different from the European types of integrations. I agree. Oh. Yeah. Right here. Samar Chatterjee from Safe Foundation. Um, I, I'd like to ask a question or a, or a comment which is a little in contradiction to the other questions or other aspects which wants to keep Japan, as I call it, in American clutches. I'd like to ask this. Isn't it better for Japan to... I know that Europe is not going to be liberated that soon from the American clutches, but <laughs> Japan has more possibility of doing that. And wouldn't Japan be far more credible in, in world politics and in uh, affairs dealing with other countries if it did not need the protection of its erstwhile enemy which who very very um, who had no compassion at all dropped two nuclear bombs right in the smack in the middle of the of two cities and then it talks about human rights all over the world it do. the United States goes around talking about human rights but we know from its records of the last 12 years and the past history of the United States that human rights does not figure in the actions of U.S. president and the U.S. military. Given that, wouldn't it be better? Who would like to address that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'll, I'll give you a minute uh, to think about it. I, 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 I um, well, I... I I, I personally, I, I see great mutual benefit in, in the alliance, and I don't think it would, would be sustained um, as it has been and, and has flourished if it, if it didn't have, if it didn't deliver uh, value uh, to both parties. And the economic benefits right. are there. I mean, but, but I, well, I, I think political and strategic, I think it's been beneficial for the region as well. But, you know, Even so we may... Terrific. And... And, 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 and I, you know, I would certainly agree that um, I would not single out the United States, I guess, for um, elements of hypocrisy or uh, uh, transgressions uh, throughout the past. Uh, but, um, but looking forward, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a worthwhile question to think what, uh, forgetting up until now and this and that, looking forward, does, does Japan still have uh, a lot to gain. Does the does the region still have much to gain, or if so, what from from the alliance as a part or as a vehicle in the process of developing this 
both East Asian and Asia Pacific communities. Well, I just just to comment briefly on that, uh, it's that it, it seems the reaction most whenever I go out and talk with people in the region that it's very clear that the alliance is that they see the alliance as the foundation of stability and security across the region, uh, and uh, I think that's the reality. It has really served as the foundation of the region's prosperity over the last 50 years, and I think it should continue to do so. Chris Olga, do you want to uh, add anything? Okay. Um, well, we have time for another question or two, uh, and I'll... Hello, uh, my name is Inyang Park. I'm a graduate student from South Korea. I wanted to ask the panelists if you believe that uh, resolution of territorial and historical disputes in the region um, is conditional to building this uh, security uh, framework or community in the region, or um, the issues would eventually be sidelined because of such strong economic integration. Thank you. Uh, Professor Olga, in, in your, and Mike, in your seminar workshop that you talked about, that also involved the participation of people from South Korea and China as well, or just your, uh, is, did that, did that subject come up at all, kind of the issue of uh, the territorial, territorial uh, disputes, or was that kind of conveniently? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it wasn't uh, discussed, but uh, definitely when I was uh, in Japan uh, in January, uh, everyone was talking about uh, the, the territorial uh, disputes. And the thing about territorial disputes, it's, uh, you know, unless you can really split uh, you know, the, the territory and you give half of it to one side and the other half to the other, uh, it's very hard to reach a compromise uh, 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 Solution on this, you know, it is a zero-sum uh, uh, question, and so I think the only way to deal with these territorial disputes is to uh, depoliticize this, uh, to make it uh, less and less uh, important. Uh, and one way of, of doing this is to promote uh, uh, a joint uh, economic development uh, around the seas. If, if you're thinking about these territorial disputes, especially between Japan and Korea and Japan and China, the amount of real estate is, is negligible. I mean, it's really the, uh, the resources around them. And so uh, if you could deal with the, the political uh, problems, then I think the territorial disputes uh, uh, might disappear. Now, the other thing is that they are of symbolic importance, and this is especially between Japan and Korea. And, and this is why I think it's really important to pr promote uh, the, uh, the process of historical reconciliation. I, mean, I guess one of the big regrets I have about the DPJ uh, government is that the DPJ, much more uh, than the LDP, uh, would have been uh, the party to promote the reconciliation uh, process. Uh, and I think Prime Minister Hatoyama and Prime Minister Khan were quite committed to this. You know, unfortunately, uh, uh, there were those within the DPJ that resisted, and, and then we had these unfortunate uh, incidents. Uh, and, and I don't know whether we can uh, uh, return to that time for a while. I mean, I hope that precisely because Prime Minister Abe uh, is seen as a nationalist, uh, he might have the freedom of maneuver uh, to promote historical reconciliation, uh, but you know, as you know, his views 
uh, tend to be uh, much more nationalistic uh, on these issues than Hatayama or Khan. Uh, can, I, can I briefly talk to the historical dispute? Sure. Yeah. Um, I don't think historical dispute that necessarily matter to the security corporations. Uh, for example, um, even in the United States and Japan, there is a different understanding and kind of dispute to the atomic bombs. Um, I don't know exactly, but um, the, some of the some of the American people uh, has positive views on, on the atomic bombs in the Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And even even if we have a different understanding um, to the war and atomic bombs, the, the security cooperation is uh, possible. Interesting. I, I, I guess I'll, I'll close in a sense with a, um, a story. I, I would believe that the community building is a, is a means toward the, the end of, of reconciling some of some of those issues. When I was in Tokyo in September and, and the, the territorial issues were running hot, NHK had this interesting program where they, they focused a whole hour and they split it between um, the Senkakus and then uh, the Dokdo Takashima issue half and half. And on the, on the Senkaku piece, they had a, a, a panel of, of um, Japanese experts and political commentators from different political persuasions, and they debated and discussed the issue. But for the, uh, uh, for the, the, the dispute with, with, with Korea, they actually had – they brought onto the show um, three Korean scholars slash officials. One, I think, was from, from the foreign ministry. Uh, another was a scholar. One was a retired foreign ministry. And they debated on live TV in Japanese on the issue of – on the historical issue and the origin of it and the different arguments of – and it was – you could just see that the atmosphere in the room between and – and the tone of the conversation, it was completely different. And so all the millions of people around Japan who were watching that show had a very different impression and I think a deeper appreciation or an understanding even if they didn't agree with everything that, that uh, the, the, the Korean gentlemen were saying – the respect for their, you know, coming and talking in Japanese and, and doing this. And that, their ability to do that, you know, is it's language training, it's familiarity with the country, it's getting to know each other, it's having those networks of being able to bring people on to the shows and the programs. I mean, that's all part of community building in, in a sense. It's not necessarily financial or trade, and it's not necessarily security, et cetera. But uh, that's my one little anecdote in terms of how that could potentially help help serve down the line of, of uh, promoting that. Well, I, uh, we've, we've, we've come to the end, and I, I just want to really thank uh, Professor Olga and, uh, for coming and, and bringing us this, this presentation and, and this project idea and, and fabulous commentary from, from Jim and, and Mike and for your participation and, and USJI's uh, uh, collaboration on this as well and to our staff putting this, this all together. Uh, thank you very much for, for coming.